missions, or uh, maybe you've been in a church before, maybe you haven't, and uh, and you've you've heard about missions being like a mission trip over to Fiji or a mission trip to Africa, um, which are all worthwhile, but rarely have I ever heard in my lifetime. Um, have I ever heard people actually talking about missions being right actually on our doorstep? And, uh, and the thought that we are actually missionaries. If we love and follow Jesus, we're actually missionaries to the people around us. And, uh, and how do we actually do that? Uh, often as I walk right around our neighbourhood, I've noticed that uh, most houses have closed doors, windows and lives. Uh, we have an electric roller door. You know, it's really nice just to click the button. You drive on in. Don't actually have to talk to your neighbour. Don't actually have to look at your neighbour. You can just drive right on into your house. Uh, we have air conditioners, so we want to make sure that we keep all the good air in. How many dads here? Shut all the doors, shut the windows, shut the curtains. We want to make sure the cool air stays in. Uh, so all the doors are shut. Covenants on land require high fences between homes, reducing the opportunity for interaction between neighbours. The increase of technology and internet shopping has seen a reduction in people shopping in-store and reducing the interaction with real people face-to-face. The self-serve checkouts. Everyone, anyone used those before? They are a sweet deal. I like them. But doesn't it just stop the interaction with people? So we don't actually have to talk to a checkout person. We can get into a shop, potentially, that has 100 workers or more and uh, full of maybe 100 people or more, we can get, walk into a shop, we can get what we need and walk out and not say a single word. Maybe even not have eye contact with anyone. <laughs> Busy looking at their phones, looking at the uh, grocery list. Video games mean that children and adults spend many, many hours in front of a screen, isolated without meaningful interaction with people. In-car DVDs mean that family car trips are centred around entertaining the children and keeping them quiet rather than taking every opportunity to teach and interact with each other in a meaningful way. We live in a society, don't we, where lives, buildings, everywhere we walk seems to be sort of a closed door. We can just sort of have our personal life without uh, great interaction with people. God called Mark Driscoll put it this way, people are increasingly busy, isolated, lonely, disconnected, and without any helpful solutions in the culture. The isolation is now so entrenched that many people don't know how to practice hospitality. This trend is even reflected in new architecture, which replaces large dining and living rooms designed for human contact with walk-in closets, home offices and personal entertainment rooms. Here, lonely people can watch sitcoms about friendships and reality-based shows in which characters pretend to interact with human beings, a thing apparently fascinating and foreign to many lonely, isolated individuals. (laughs) Isn't this true? The way we build houses, well, often I was convicted of this um, last Saturday when, uh, when we were looking at our home and the way we'd set it up and we had uh, three, four, five couches in our living room centred around the TV. Now rarely do we have more than two people, if not one person, sitting watching TV. And in our other section, where we like to have people, we had five couches <laughs> So we got an extra two couches and dragged them out and sorted out our living area because we were uh, convicted of this idea that we actually want our lives to be focused around people. We don't want it to be focused around the TV. So uh, huge opportunity and uh, we've already had community group and it seemed to work okay. 
So uh, all these things, the reason I'm saying all these things, I've used a DVD, DVD with my own daughter in the car, all right? So it's not like a sin to use a DVD in the car. But I want us to be thinking, what's our interaction with people uh, on a week-to-week basis, on a day-to-day basis? How much do we actually interact with people? I reckon these, actually, these areas actually need to be redeemed somehow for the kingdom of God. If we did a solid study of Jesus' life, most of it was spent with people, not apart from people. Not just being with people, but engaging with them in meaningful and intentional ways as he obeyed his father and worked towards establishing his everlasting kingdom. Remember the story of me walking around my neighbourhood and seeing all these things. There's one house that sticks out. This one house uh, is, there's a guy and his family live there. And without fail, every day, his roller door is up. He's sitting out the front, having a smoke, having a beer, whatever he's doing. And, uh, and he's just hanging out there. So me and my wife and, uh, and my children were walking up to visit some friends up the road. And uh, we walked past his house. He invites us in for a beer. I've never met the guy except wave to him. <laughs> That's all I've done. So here's this guy who has a completely open door, it seems. And when the door's shut, I was just thinking about it, when the door's shut, there's usually an extra car or two cars. So there's obviously people inside hanging around inside. So this guy, he's got a huge open door and invites, seemingly, anyone who walks past, come on in, have a beer. Come and hang out for a while. Uh, so I think we can actually learn a lot from this guy. And, uh, and we can learn a lot for both our practical lives and our spiritual lives. Practically, our homes could be places with many open doors to people in our neighbourhood. Spiritually, it may actually mean opening more doors and windows so that people can see into your life. So that they see how truly good Jesus is as he works in your life. Of late, uh, Sondergeld, Pete, Pete, the guy who's, uh, who usually preaches, he's actually been preaching about uh, God and his redemptive mission. So God is always on a redemptive mission. And as a church, we strongly believe that God is sent and sending. This means that God has sent Jesus into the world uh, to reconcile us to himself. And God is in the business of actually gathering more and more worshippers. An interesting quote I I heard from a guy called Ravi Zacharias. He's a Christian apologist. Uh, He goes around the world. He's spoken to the hierarchy in, uh, in, um, in Islam. Uh, actually about the Christian faith and has sat down at peace with these people and had good conversations. But he said this, Jesus did not come into this world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. That is a stark contrast. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. He came to bring dead people to life, spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God, dead, and bring them to life in relationship with God. This is incredible. It's interesting as I sit down in, uh, in Christian studies lessons, often this, this, this question will come up where, uh, where students say, but, but what about like good people? Like what about people who are really good? Like God surely would love them. Surely they would be Christians. And, uh, and the conversation rolls from there and uh, we try to work out what's good. What actually makes someone good? Do they still do bad things? So how does this work out? How does it cash out? Well, uh, I think Ravi puts it really well. So we're no longer talking about good and bad anymore. No longer talking about the good things that we do and the bad things that we do, but instead, people are spiritually dead because of our sin, and we need to come to life. We need to come to new life. If Jesus came to make bad people good, 
We'll be able to replicate it by obeying laws and getting others to obey. This is what we heard last week. All right, If we're going to redeem ourselves by the good things we do and being good religious people, we could do a pretty good job. But it's not going to be the end job. It's not going to be the greatest job. Instead, God's plan of redemption involves the miracle of bringing, and bringing the spiritually dead to life. That's something we can't actually replicate. That's something we can't actually do on our own. Something that only, God can be, only can be done by God who is on a, on a redemptive mission for his own glory and for our deepest joy. As I said at the start, mission is often thought about, and this is the way I've thought about missions, is uh, it's often thought about I'm giving money to people in India so they can plant churches in India. Or um, I'm going on a short-term missions trip to Fiji uh, with a whole bunch of people and uh, we're sharing Jesus over in Fiji in villages or schools or whatever we're doing. Um, but rarely has it actually come back to we're actually missionaries right here, right now. And, uh, and the idea that we meet in community groups every week. This is central to who we are as the project, is uh, we actually meet in community each week. Um, but before, I want, before we go into actually what does it mean to be on mission with, with God, uh, I wanted to look at five things that mission in community is not. Five things that mission in community is not. And I say this not as a... Uh, I'm not making a judgment call on people who've done this before, all right? Uh, all I'm saying is I think these are really good warnings for us. If we are going to be a healthy and vibrant people following Jesus and being on mission with Jesus, then uh, these are the things we should really steer clear of and uh, not head into. Mission in community is not private assassin training. In this idea, you move toward the person, tell them they're a sinner and call them to repent. Whatever their response, you did the job and then take the sights on the next person. All right? Maybe you've done this. Maybe you think of door-to-door. All right, where you go door to door, you share with them uh, a little leaflet or a tract, and uh, if you don't hit the mark, right, oh, move on to the next target. See you later, I'm done. <laughs> no relationship, no sit down and have a meal, have a coffee. We're just on a mission. <laughs> we need to get the job done, and, uh, and we're out. Uh, so instead, we actually want to love people, and as a community, move towards them with the intention of loving them and living our lives together that reflect God's glory Showing the world around us the saving, transforming love and power of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do. We don't just want to be trained assassins. Go in, take a shot and get out. No, we don't want to do that. Our mission in community is not a clique. Strong and belonging, but weak on reproduction. All right? So in this group, uh, this group becomes very effective in learning and sharing their lives together, but we just, stay, we just want to stay that way. We actually want to bottle it up and keep it that way forever. The group is at a really nice place and they don't want new people to come in and destroy the feeling. You ever been in a group like that? Or maybe you've been the new person who's gone into the group. Oh man, that's just uncomfortable. <laughs> you can't get your way in. They just want to fence it off, bottle it up. You can't get your way in. A click. This is really dangerous. This is really dangerous. We don't want to be these people. Uh, instead, the sole purpose of the group is not just so that people belong, because belonging is important. We know that. Belonging is very important. I want to belong in my family. A child desperately wants to belong in their family. I want to belong in a church. If I'm going to go to a church, I actually want a sense of connection and belonging with that church. So it's not wrong for that to happen. But if that's the sole purpose, it ends up becoming this real clicky little thing, and there's all sorts of clicks going on in the church, and, uh, and it becomes purposeless. 
so that each person instead, but so each person is equipped and able to be on mission. So it's not just stay in, it's go out in their neighborhoods. Additionally, new people are welcome so that they see lives transformed by the gospel. In this is true health and life. Missioning community is not a club. Strong on membership, weak on community. So in this group, I love to be a member of the weekly gathering, but rarely take initiative to care for people or work together on mission the rest of the week. The weekly gathering is really nice, but if an issue comes up in the week, people actually rarely know about it because all they're involved in is the club. They've paid their membership, they've done their deed, they've signed the paper, they're, they're a member, but they really couldn't care about the people in the club. <laughs> the community doesn't go any further than the Wednesday meeting or the Sunday meeting, so it just becomes like this club. People aren't committed to each other. Uh, they like to go, get their stuff, have a drink, talk and go home. All right? I'll be the same as being a member of a uh, sports club or a pub, something like that, uh, where you go, you have a drink, you talk, you go home. That's it. Rather, community is a constant. We are involved in each other's lives day by day and we are working and praying together as we are on mission. Mission and community is not a medical centre. This group is strong on caring but weak on discipline. So this group, people love to come, unload all their stuff, all their burdens, all their difficulties, all their challenges, which is really good. We actually want this to happen again. We want this to happen but not to be the sole reason of the group. Taken to extreme, this group tends to fold in on itself as members unload at each meeting but rarely deal with the core issues. And so the leader in the group or the people in the group don't actually want to help them deal with the issue. All they want to do is put a band-aid and, oh, I'm really sorry, that must be really hard, let me pray for you, and nothing actually gets dealt with. So it becomes a real huge burden on the leader, it becomes a real huge burden on the people because we're all unloading, but nothing's ever been done to move forward, to actually change. Uh, this becomes weighty and depressing and people become tired and demotivated for mission. Instead, we do care for people and the many issues that we face together, but we want to work together to see each of us deal with the core issues of, and struggles and become more like Christ. What's God showing me and what is he trying to do in my situation of pain? Question you could ask. All right, so I've unloaded all my stuff, but now what is actually God trying to show me here? How's God actually going to work this for, for my good? Is it going to work out? Mission and community, finally, is not a closet. These people are strong on protection and weak on nurturing gifts. You can be part of us as long as you don't try to change us. We all like things the way they are, just the way they are. And we'd actually like to stay separate from everybody else and, uh, and make sure we maintain this uh, nice sort of holy huddle. The truth is only told if it doesn't offend people or ruffle too many feathers. I don't know if you've been in groups like this. There's been times, I mean, you, there's probably ebbs and flows of community groups uh, where all these are apparent, uh, but we need to be just conscious of them all. If a member disrupts and inhibits others in the group, it's usually not helpful to challenge them. We like to tr- retreat from culture and society in the hope of working towards holiness and interaction with God. People in the group are squeezed shut and things become very claustrophobic, with little growth once, growth once it's full. So like a closet, everyone gets jammed in the closet, the walls are around, the doors are shut, and nobody can really move. But we're just going to stay in there anyway because we really like it. <laughs> Think of a closet, mothballs, <laughs> dirty smell. Not great. 
mission in this group is not an option because it would mean stepping out of the closet, breaking down restrictive walls and letting people grow in their gifts and inviting others in who may actually cause disruption as they learn to see and follow Jesus. Each of these groups, like I was saying, actually has something to offer. All right? Each of these groups, there's helpful things from every one of the groups. But taken to their strongest tendency, taken to the extreme, they're all going to be dangerous uh, at many levels. This has been good for me as, I was, as I've been thinking about uh, my own community group. And as if you're part of a community group here, we're going to be talking about this week. What is, this going to, is this what we look like? Are we becoming like a clique? Are we becoming like a club? How are we going to steer away from that and become like the community that Jesus wants us to be? So instead, God invites us on his mission. He invites us in, he actually rescues people and wants them to go out and be rescuers. He doesn't rescue them so they can be spiritual gluttons. This is a, I don't know if anyone else has used it, but I often think about this. A spiritual glutton would be someone who comes to church or someone who uh, becomes a Christian and they're just like, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. And nothing ever gets put out. All right? You know what happens when we eat too much, right? We don't do exercise. If there's no output, uh, then we become fat, we become fat and we become a glutton. Right? And I think it's similar spiritually. Feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. But if I'm not putting out, if there's nothing going out of me, then I'll become this glutton, I'll become this fat spiritual person that's most likely ineffective. So instead, God wants us to be on mission. For a Christian, our very lives are that of a missionary. Think about a missionary. Maybe you think of someone uh, over the history of, uh, of this century and you think about missionaries who've had great impact in the world. They've gone to a country, they've left everything they've had uh, back here at home, and they've gone to a country and they've literally, their family's been killed. Um, they've laid aside, you know, they've, they've been sick, they've gone through terrible stuff so that they can get the word of Christ, so they can share the gospel with these people over in, over in another country. Consider that being the very call that is on our lives every day. I wonder if you've ever thought of yourself as a missionary. I wonder if you've ever thought of, as, of a church as a missionary church. So that we're not just a church that exists for ourselves, we're a church that exists to be missionaries to the very culture around us. What does it look like? When we function according to our design as image bearers, we are in essence joining God on his mission by declaring, displaying and discerning the glory of God. We are invited to join God on the mission of declaring his glory as image bearers, worshippers and the people of God and as those who bear witness to his transforming work in us by bearing his fruit of righteousness. If you've got your Bibles there, just open up to uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 right through to 15. And we're going... So at this point in Acts, this is uh, written by a guy called Luke and he's wanting to help concrete some stuff for his friend Theophilus. Theophilus is a, seems to be uh, someone in high position uh, within the, uh, the culture around them. And, uh, and Luke is really writing all this stuff to help establish and build a framework, build a good foundation for, the, for Theophilus to actually come and follow Jesus. And at this point, Paul, uh, sorry, Luke writes about uh, how the church began. All right, When the Holy Spirit actually came upon people, 
and some wacky stuff happened. This, this is going to be wacky if you've never read it before. But if you th- think about what, what was the purpose of it, why did the Holy Spirit come, what was the effect of the Holy Spirit coming, and, uh, and filling believers. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So this is all the Jewish Christians. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Can you understand how wacky this would be? You're sitting in a room with a bunch of people similar to this. They're having some sort of prayer meeting, worshipping God together. And suddenly the Holy Spirit comes literally like a rushing wind. And they start speaking a whole bunch of different languages. Like, if I was standing there, I would imagine I would be just going, this is wacky, this is nutty. (laughs) What the heck is going on here? But keep reading, because there's a very specific purpose to it. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. So people heard the rushing wind, and they were like, what the heck's going on over there? Let's go and check it out. And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear? Each of us is in his own native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God right there. Did you hear that? We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Why was the Holy Spirit given to those people on that day? Why did the Holy Spirit come in such great power and give them all sorts of different tongues to speak? God seems to be a pretty multicultural God right here. All right, This is a, this is a term that's coined all over our culture, isn't it? We want to be a multicultural nation. We want to be a multicultural uh, place where many, many people are welcome. Right here, God becomes or shows people that he's a multicultural God. The gospel isn't just for one, pe- one type of people. The gospel isn't just for the Jews or the Galileans. The gospel is for all people from a bunch of different areas. I wonder if you think there's people who don't actually deserve the gospel. I wonder if you're sitting here today and... Uh, these, these people, like, man, you, you could list a whole bunch of people from around our place. Maybe you think black people don't deserve the gospel. Maybe you think emos don't deserve the gospel. Maybe you think gays don't deserve the gospel. What's the go with that? No way. God's saying, you know what? Spread it out. I want my work and I want my name to be glorified to all people in all nations. No room for prejudice. No room at all. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others decided to mock them. They're filled with new wine. They're drunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Let me start by saying this, mission is all about God's glory. If you go right back to the very beginning of the project, one of the first sermons that was ever preached was about the glory of God. 
and how the glory of God is the weightiest, heaviest thing in all the universe. And because it holds so much weight, because it holds so much value, that is actually the most valuable thing for God. For God to value anything else would mean that he wouldn't be God. So God must value his own glory most. Since his glory is precious to him, his story centers on the declaration of his glory. He is on mission to declare his glory as gracious redeemer and sovereign ruler. His mission becomes our mission as we are redeemed and made his own. Secondly, this mission will take place, take us all to peoples in and from all cultures, just as these people did, just as Jesus did. Consider Jesus for a moment. You might know the story where Jesus went through the place called Samaria. He was going to, uh, to his hometown and uh, he went through the place called Samaria. Now, Jesus, being a Jew, wouldn't actually be welcome in Samaria. Right? That would be like crossing the border. You know, we have rights. There were rights in Sydney between the Lebanese and I can't remember who it was. Two different races. All right? So much history, so much division, so much battle. Uh, and so there's riots going on. You step into my territory, you're gone, man. You've got no chance. Be similar. You step into the Sumerian territory, Samaritan territory, as a Jew, you're a goner. You're just looking for trouble. So Jesus walks into Samaria and his boys go off to get some, uh, get some lunch and he sits down beside a well and he starts talking to a woman. Second mishap. What's going on, Jesus? You're breaking all the rules. You don't talk to women. A man doesn't talk to a woman, not like that, especially not a Jewish man to a Samaritan woman. So he's breaking down these cultural barriers that come between people. He sits down and he has a chat. The disciples get back and go, what is he doing? This is crazy. Has he eaten yet? What's going on? He breaks down these cultural barriers and starts talking to people. So as you think about your own life, I wonder if there's cultural barriers that you've actually set up between you and other people. Maybe it's the uh, nice middle-class sort of cultural barrier where you don't actually want to take a step down to the lower class because that would seem too, you know, just it it would get too messy. Or maybe it's the middle class against the upper class. Maybe it's the upper class against the lower class. Maybe it's the, uh, you know, the emos. Maybe it's the country people. We don't talk to country people. You know, country bumpkins. Who would talk to them? You know what I mean? We we do. I I don't know if you do. I do. (laughs) I set up all these cultural biases based on my opinions, based on who I think, really, ultimately, who I think deserves to hear about Jesus. All right? And if they don't, in my opinion, then uh, then I'm probably not really going to go near them. And I'm probably sinning by doing that. I'm probably sinning by doing that. How many cultures do you see around you in your neighbourhoods? Think about this. How many cultures do you see? In my neighbourhood where we live, there are, there's been an influx of Sudanese people. And so there's Sudanese people walking up and down the footpaths. There's Sudanese people driving around the, the streets. There's Sudanese children playing, crossing the paddock over the road. How many cultures do you see in your, in your neighbourhood? Do you see an upper-class culture? Do you see a middle-class culture? Do you see a lower-class culture? Where is it? Do you see working-class you see a bunch of people who rent their houses and don't buy their houses? What sort of cultures do you see? Do you see cultures from different countries within your neighbourhood? Do you see cultures from different eras? Do you see a lot of elderly people living in your area? 
If so, then the gospel needs to be worked so that they understand how relevant it is to them. But that's going to be a different gospel, same gospel, but it's going to look different to the young Sudanese children. That's going to be the same gospel, but it's going to look different to the middle class, the upper class, the lower class, whoever it is. So you see all these different cultures, subcultures, like I've already said. Here's the next thing. When people see and hear the gospel, as we live our lives in community, it will actually grab their attention. Jump down to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, if you can with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And we see here God's very intent mission uh, as he heads out. And as he changes people's lives and the effect that actually has on uh, people who are looking on. Acts 2 verse 41, sorry. So those who received his word were baptised and there were added, to, added that day about 3,000 souls. Imagine that. Could you imagine 3,000 people flooding into the Project Church? Now people say it's not about numbers. It is about numbers. Of course it's about numbers. We want as many people as we can to come and hear about Jesus and to be follower of him. We want that. We desperately want that. We don't want the numbers to be our identity. Who cares how many numbers we've got? But we want as many people as possible. Whether it's 3,000, whether it's 10,000, man, cast the vision greater and bigger than we could ever imagine. It's possible with God. 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So in this, it seems to be the situation is that upper class, lower class, the poor, seems to all sort of level out. People start selling their stuff, giving to people as they had need. So the poor were no longer poor anymore, the 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 wealthy, the affluent, were no longer wealthy and affluent. They became a community of people together. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, a learning community. A learning community. You see, right at the very beginning... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So it could be noted that those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. It's not like we sort of waft off into this sort of I don't know, this weird sort of spiritual experience where we don't actually have to think anymore. Um, weird sort of meditation deal. Uh, no, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Those early disciples, uh, they didn't imagine that because they had received the spirit that the Holy Spirit was the only teacher they needed and they could dispense with human teachers. No, instead they actually sat at the apostles' feet hungry to receive instruction and they preserved and they persevered in it. So the church was characterised, these new disciples are characterised by humility and a desire to learn. I just want to learn. I want to grow. I want to sit under the feet of people who teach me, people at the project, 
wherever it is, the people who teach me, uh, so that I can grow and learn to be a disciple of Jesus. Secondly, they are a loving church. These are the things that characterise the people of God and I think should characterise us. If we're going to call ourselves a church, if we're going to call ourselves the people of God, then uh, these things should characterise us. So together we share in fellowship with God himself. What do they do? To fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So the fellowship at a corporate level that they had with God. They devoted themselves to that. But they also devoted themselves to the fellowship that they had with each other as they shared with each other, as they received from each other. They enjoyed each other's fellowship. Thirdly, they're a worshipping church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So it seems it was the Lord's Supper. Last week we celebrated uh, the Lord's Supper together. And they prayed together actually rather than individually. It is a myth to think that when people are saved, they become an individual. That's a myth. The Bible rarely teaches that. Are people called to be missionaries in a culture where it's probably pretty well they're on their own? Yeah, absolutely. But typically, people are called to be missionaries right here and not to be an individual. So they were called to pray together rather than individually. God wants us to be characterised by our togetherness rather than our individuality. There are two aspects of the early church's worship which exemplify its balance. First, it was both formal and informal, for it took place both in the temple courts and in their homes. So they didn't just abandon, abandon structured church. You know, like the, uh, they didn't just abandon it. They might have been fed up with it, they might have had enough of it, but they didn't abandon it. So we're not going to abandon meeting together in a structured way like we're doing right here so that the gospel can be proclaimed. But we're not just going to uh, go and meet in homes either. We're not just going to abandon that. We actually want to do both at the same time. seems to be that's what they did here. They went to the temple, they worshipped, they prayed together, and then they met in homes and they broke bread together. They had meals. They enjoyed each other's company. They partied. The second example of the balance of the early church's worship is that it was both joyful and reverent. Sometimes a more uninhibited joy than is customary or even acceptable within the staid traditions of the historic churches. Yet every worship service should be a joyful celebration of the mighty acts of God through Jesus Christ. It is right in public worship to be dignified. It is unforgivable to be dull. At the same time, their joy was never irreverent. If joy in God is an authentic work of the Spirit, so is the fear of God. Well, God has to be feared. He's not just some, you know, mini, tiny God who lives in the hearts of people. No, he's the God of the universe. He's the God of all power. Untamed. All power. He's a God to be feared. A missional church. God was glorified. It was him who added to their number and saved people. So the mission is about God. mission is about Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about how good we are as a church. It's about Jesus. The Lord himself did it. The Lord added to their number. Doubtless, he did it through the preaching of the apostles, the witness of church members, the impressive love of their common life, and their examples as they were praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And it was a daily occurrence. What about that? Missions isn't just a one-off thing. Missions isn't an event that uh, we invite everyone to and hope that people get saved and wait for the next time round. 
next year. No, missions is an everyday thing. If we're going to be missionaries, we're missionaries every day. Just like we're worshippers every day. Just like we're followers of Jesus every day. Not just doing it on a Sunday. So their evangelism was not an occasional or sporadic activity. They did not organise short-term missions. These are fine as long as they are only episodes in an ongoing program. No, just as their worship was daily, so was their witness. Praise and proclamation were both the natural overflow of hearts full of the Holy Spirit. And as their outreach was continuous, so continuously converts were being added. How's that? Their outreach was continuous, and so continuously converts were being added. Who was doing the adding? Jesus was. Wasn't them. Wasn't completely up to them. Jesus was using them, but Jesus was the one who was adding. That's the cool thing. So you look back over these five marks of the first church who had been given the Holy Spirit, it is evident that they are all concerned, that they all concerned the church's relationships. First, they were related to the apostles in submission. They were eager to receive the apostles' instruction. We must be anxious to believe and obey what Jesus and his apostles taught. Does that characterize your life? Is your life characterized, if you follow Jesus today, is your life characterized by one of submission? We want to learn. I hope, my hope is that when I'm 60 years old, I had a friend tell a story. I had a friend uh, at my nana's uh, nursing home. So we'd go and visit my nana, and on the way through, uh, this elderly lady, she was like 90, a bit over 90. And, uh, and I walked in one day, and uh, we were having a chat, and she just loved Jesus. Man, she, did she love Jesus? And uh, we were having a chat, and anyway, she said to me, just before I left, she said, Nathan, she said, never stop being a child of God. Never stop being a child. I'm 90 years old, but I'm still a child. I've still got stuff to learn. What an attitude. I think right here, that captures exactly what this scripture is talking about. She devoted herself to teaching, to learning. For the rest of my life, I want to be learning about Jesus. You know, I hope so. And that's a good thing. God's the eternal God. There's no end to it. You're going to keep learning and keep learning and things are still going to be opening up to you when you're 97 years old. (laughs) Reading the Bible for the 500th time and it's just going to be bursting open to you. And that will be cool. Secondly, they were related to each other in love. They persevered in the fellowship, supporting each other and relieving the needs of the poor. A healthy church is a loving, caring, sharing church. Thirdly, they were related to God in worship. They worshipped him in the temple and in the home. Didn't matter where they were, in the Lord's Supper and in the prayers, with joy and with reverence. A healthy church is a worshipping church. Fourthly, they were related to the world in outreach. They were engaged in continuous evangelism. No self-centred, self-contained church, absorbed in its own parochial affairs, can claim to be a healthy church. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. So a healthy church is a missionary church. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16. If you've got it there, you might like to open. Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Pointless. We lose our saltiness. We lose our effectiveness as missionaries. What's the point? 
seems to be here as well that it's connected. Our effectiveness, our effectiveness, our activity as missionaries actually helps our saltiness. Right? Because if we don't do that, if we're not doing anything, we lose our saltiness, we lose our effectiveness, we lose our touch within culture. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's the purpose of the mission? The mission is about God. We want God to be glorified. What's the purpose of us as missionaries? We want God to be glorified in our lives, in the way we spend our money, in the way we interact with each other, in the way we live as community. I'll never forget, I went to a, uh, a conference one time and there's this short little Asian guy and he's planted hundreds of churches over in, uh, in China. And he's standing up there, and he's just going gung-ho, like he's, he's screaming out. He's just so passionate about people hearing about Jesus and mobilising people to go out and be missionaries. That's what he was doing. Anyway, so he gave the example. He pulled his watch off, and his watch was one whole lot, face lit up. And uh, in the light, he held his watch up, and he said, Can you see it? Can you see my watch? Can you see the light? Everyone's like, No. Can't see it, maybe the front row. <laughs> he couldn't see it. Then he got all the lights in the whole auditorium turned off. Curtain shut, it was pitch black. And then he, start, he turns his watch on and starts waving around. Can you see it? Can you see it? And this is exactly the point. If all the lights hang out together, we're not going to be light anywhere. There's no darkness to, to, to invade. There's no darkness to slice through. This is what Bill Clem said. Our presence is to be a redemptive presence in our culture. It is to ruin darkness with light. Ruin it. It is to enhance our culture as salt or seasoning. Our compelling missional thought should be to so embed ourselves in what is right about our culture that people would weep if we as the people of God were removed from it. So together we bear the image of God. Individually we bear the image of God, but together we bear the image of God as we go out. Showing what grace, truth, love and transformation look like. People will be welcomed to come and see and hopefully be saved. It won't be messy. Being a missionary will probably be messy. It'll mean you're going to have to sacrifice yourself. It'll mean you have to sacrifice your own time. It won't mean late nights. It won't mean going to the dirty places in town. It might mean hanging out with people who everyone would look at you and shun. Like, who are you? Or would you hang out with them? It's interesting in, a, in a, my wife and I, we've had conversations of late with, uh, with just a couple of people and they're like, you did what with your neighbour? All we did was have our neighbour over for a meal. Hardly even met them before, but uh, we just wanted to hang out. They're like, what? No, you don't do that with neighbours. What if they rip you off? <laughs> what if they don't treat you right? People are going to be so surprised. People are going to be so surprised. Doesn't that make it even more attractive? Doesn't it make the gospel even more attractive? Tim Chester said this, If you tell someone he's a sinner, who needs God while you're handing him a cup of soup, then he'll most likely hear you saying he's a loser who should become like you. So you're doing the right thing, you're doing the soup kitchen thing, you're handing soup to people, it's all sweet. But if that's your motivation, if that's your only platform for sharing the gospel... Most likely it's going to come across pretty harsh. But when you eat together as friends, you sit down and have your cup of soup, and you tell him what a messed up person you are, then you can tell him about sin and grace. 
I was on the six seven camp during this week and we went down to Talabudra. We had an interesting stay down there. And uh, great time. Learned to surf, uh, circus games, team games, beach. Great time. Awesome food. Man, they give you the best food on camps. <laughs> Teachers get it pretty good. Anyway, uh, we... I sat down and I had this conversation. It was the very last day. We were sitting in. The kids were all doing the activities. He'd set them challenges to do. We were just sitting there. We were having this conversation. And uh, somehow we got onto how we'd both travelled across the world and uh, and to different places. And he just loved how um, going to, you know, third world countries and seeing the way their culture is completely different to ours. And so he's telling me this whole whole story. And then somehow we got onto the... Uh, Got onto the topic of his family and his and his own faith. I can't remember exactly how it led there, but anyway, got there. So he just starts opening up to me. He just said, uh, "I'm about to get married to my girlfriend, so I'm sort of starting to think about my faith." My my little daughter, who's not actually my daughter, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, she's going to a Lutheran school. I was like, "So your girlfriend's an atheist. You're sort of grown up a bit of a Christian. She's going to a Lutheran school. How does that work?" bit messed up and he's no it's a great school and if anything man she's getting good christian morals in that school great and so we kept talking he then started talking about his, how his wife uh had conceived that baby through ivf her ex-husband who went and had an affair uh basically couldn't he was infertile so they had to go and get ivf for uh for this little baby to be born and then he goes and has an affair they break it off it's just a mess and he said this, he said, she wouldn't be welcome in church. How could she work in, walk into a Catholic church? We're about to get married, Catholic priest, about to marry us, or Anglican, I can't remember exactly. How could, he, how could she walk into a church? She wouldn't be accepted. So I got to talk about all the times Jesus, I talked about a couple anyway, where Jesus was hanging out with people just like that. It's not, it's not about how good we are. The gospel is going to be messy. If we're going to be a church that's effective, if we're going to be a church that's growing and healthy, there's going to be messy people here. <laughs> people with messed up backgrounds. People with messed up lives. Why? Because we identify with them. We don't stand here, we don't sit here today and think, gee, we're better than the person next to me. You know, I've been a Christian all my life. No, we focus on the one person of Jesus. We realise that we're just as spiritually dead as they are. And we need to be brought to life just as they need to be brought to life. And the only way they can do that, the only way I can do that, is through Jesus. It's the only way. It's just the person who should feel most welcome here at the project and in our lives. Not just welcome, but we must move towards them. Why? Because at our deepest level, we recognise that we are sick with our own sin and with the stains of sins committed against us, just as she had. And we both need exactly the same saviour, Jesus. Together we need his salvation and his ongoing redemption. So you become the friend of sinners because you know that you are one and literally share your life with them. So back to this idea of a missionary. Think of what a wise missionary would do. Here's where it sort of gets a little bit practical. Here's what a wise missionary would do. A wise missionary would not go blind into their mission field. Um, there's a couple of people here in the army. Uh, you never go into a mission without a plan. Would I be right in saying that? You never, that would be stupid. Just stupid. You never go into a mission field without a plan, uh, without doing the research, without finding out first what's there. 
And so, just the same way, if we're going to be effective missionaries, we want to be well-planned, but we also want to know the people we're going out to. And here's where the community groups, here's where the uh, neighbourhood strategy works. Uh, This is why we think it works, one of the reasons anyway. We actually want to be effective within the neighbourhoods because we as a people, we as a church, are probably not going to affect all of Toowoomba altogether. But if we move out into little neighbourhoods where we live, where we work, where we play, where we do whatever we do, if we move out into these neighbourhoods and we start to learn the people, who are the people in my neighbourhood? Who are the people in my culture? What do they like? What do they enjoy? What don't they like? What are their prejudices? So you start to think about all these things and you don't actually have to research it. You don't have to go to Google. Toowoomba, Harristown, what are the people like? Maybe you can find statistics like that. No, just talk to people. Ask questions. Get to know people. Go and have a coffee with people. Man, it gets exciting. So four ways to engage in neighbourhoods. I'm going to talk about spaces. Firstly, before I go there, uh, missed that one. Firstly, before I go there, uh, I wanted to talk about three neighbourhoods. And uh, if, I, if you can think with me along these lines, everybody has at least three neighbourhoods. One is where you live, and you can ask questions about your own neighbourhood. Uh, I've been looking around my own neighbourhood. There's Sudanese people, they rent. Some people have bought. There's a bunch of rentals, all, all sorts of stuff going on. So where do you live? Uh, where you work is another neighbourhood. People come and people go. It's not a place of residence. People just come in, they go, they come into work, they leave work. So where do you work? What are the people like in your working environment? Second neighbourhood. And the third neighbourhood is where you want to be, where you play. Do you go to the pub of a Friday night? Do you, uh, do you, I don't know, where do you want to be? Do you go to the park every Saturday with your family? Do you play golf? Thank you, Steve. <laughs> uh, do you play golf? Do you go to the coast? Where is the place that you want to be? Think about the neighbourhood where you spend a lot of time. So now think about reaching out or reaching, sorry, reaching out from your house, from your work, from your place of play, or do you reach out to them? You reach out to them. So instead of just inviting people into your space, why don't you move out into their space? Here's some ways to do that. Fellowship. And you can see up here on the screen uh, that... As you move toward the centre of this uh, little target-looking thing, uh, you move towards the centre, that becomes the most intimate place. That's where most intimacy is, uh, is developed and where it's really healthy to be developed there. So let's move from the outside. Participation. This last space is simply participation in what your neighbourhood is doing. We do not need to create our own event, but rather join in with what the neighbourhood is already doing. The point is to build relationships and do it as a community. So as a community group, you can be asking questions. What's my neighbourhood already got going? How can I go and join them in what they're doing? I just want to build relationships with them. Let's go and help out. Let's just go and serve. Uh, Your group can be a witness to the gospel as a people who, although sin against one another, forgive and love one another. And what are the marks? What are the hallmarks of this thing? Uh, It's existing events or places and relationship building. Second area is service. Uh, This place is a place where we go go out and bless our city. It's an opportunity to partner with your neighbours toward a common cause that gives you the time to develop relationships with your neighbourhood. 
It's an opportunity to reflect the grace and love of Jesus to your neighbours. Again, you think back to the people of Acts. What were they doing? They were working together. They were living in their houses. They were inviting people over. They were going over to other people's houses. They were generous. Uh, they were learning. They were growing. So all these different things. And what was Jesus doing? Jesus was adding to their number day by day. In the same way, how can we as communities live, work, play, do all the things we do, how can we actually work together as a community to bear God's image to the people around us in our relationships, in the way we serve, in the way we uh, love, whatever it is. And, uh, and so these two areas are very, they're probably not going to be high-pressure situations, okay? But as you move in towards the centre, hospitality and fellowship, these become more intimate. And so people are most likely going to be uncomfortable if you walk into your next-door neighbour who you've never met and say, hey, come into community group on a Wednesday night. And we all sort of start unloading about sin and how we're dealing with sin. And Well, that's pretty messy. <laughs> that can be pretty intimidating for someone like that. So start, start on the outside, work your way into the middle because we want them in the middle. We want people to follow Jesus. We want them to enjoy fellowship as they were meant to. Hospitality. This is a place where you enjoy one another and can more easily invite new people to experience your community. It should be marked by a gospel-centered community while providing a safe place to introduce someone new into your group. So you've built a relationship with someone as you've served at the sausage sizzle, uh, you, as you've, you know, you've gone out and helped at the footy club. So you're building relationships, then you invite them in. Hey, do you want to come around? We've got a bunch of people hanging out. We just want to come and enjoy a meal together. Let's, let's get into it. And finally, fellowship. Fellowship is, where the place, is the place where traditional community groups spend most of it, if not all their time. This is where we study the Bible, pray, and experience the most intimate community. The hallmarks are Bible, following the sermon, prayer, worship, confession, and repentance. These are the hallmarks of fellowship. And they're really good. And we want other people to experience that and enjoy that. Because ultimately, it's what they were made to experience and enjoy. Fellowship together and fellowship with God. So I'm going to close, head back to this quote here. Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. If we are on mission to label people bad and try to make them good, it's actually a mission that's pretty well possible in our ability. So we can make up rules and use the Bible as a divine rule book of good and bad. Someone... And only some people will be able to reach our high good standard and have the ability to pay their bad things by doing good. This is religion. Religion at its core. But this isn't the good news from Jesus. It's not. This isn't the gospel. The good news from Jesus is that we are spiritually dead in our sin and need to be brought to life. Only Jesus is ultimately able to complete this incredible act. We need to join him and point to him with our lives lived out in communities that are engaged in their neighbourhoods for their joy and salvation. And uh, I'll just pray before we finish up. Lord God, uh, been through a whole lot today. And I pray that uh, the words that I've spoken, uh, that there'd be something that, that people can take away today. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be doing work in our lives to transform us and uh, make us more like you, make us more like the community uh, that you want us to be. God, I pray that the characteristics of the, of the church in Acts that first came about, where the Holy Spirit came and just did incredible things, 
God, uh, the characteristics of that church would be our characteristics. I pray that you'd transform us. I pray that you'd reveal to us areas of sin where we become religious, where we become about being good people or bad people. But Lord, instead, help us to be living people. Help us to be people who realize our own spiritual deadness and the incredible work, Jesus, that you've done in bringing us to life. And Lord, we just need your help. We need your help to know our people. We need your help to know our neighborhoods. We need your help to uh, be very savvy with uh, what's going on around us so that we can be most effective in sharing the gospel with them. So help us, God, draw us together in community groups. Help us to be real, to be honest, to speak the truth and, uh, and to move, to change and to grow as you want us to. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.